Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning as we open God's Word. And I would ask you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. That will be the text this morning. We've been preaching through the book of Mark for the better part of a year and a half. We've got three more sermons out of that gospel, but we pause today because we want to stop and recognize what God is doing in our midst with some men and their wives. I want to say to you this morning as you turn there that God is a great provider. This morning is about God's provision. I've thought all week about the Lord's provision. You know, God provided for us the ultimate when He sent His only Son to meet the most critical and important need that you and I have, and that is forgiveness for our sins and reconciliation with Him, our Father. And that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so God, knowing what we needed, devoted His Son to a, an act of service that we have been preaching about Sunday in and Sunday out, and we will until He comes again one day. That Son, Jesus Christ, came and He lived a sinless life, but He was sentenced to death. And that's where we are in the Gospel of Mark right now. He was sentenced to death, and it was an un, unthinkable death because He died on a cross. And it was unthinkable because he died having committed no sin himself. He was buried. And on the third day, God provided for us in that he rose from the dead. And it is that resurrection for which we gather every single Sunday in this place to worship and sing songs like Amazing Grace. And to teach our children to sing about our everlasting God. Well, Jesus rose from the dead and He ascended to the right hand of God. And God was not done providing for His church. Because as Jesus said in the upper room in about John fifteen sixteen, there was a helper that would be sent. God sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, who indwells the people that believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. And this helper, the Holy Spirit, enables us to live in a fallen world and to strive for our Christian faith and our Christian witness to a lost world and to retain our faith until that promised day when Jesus comes again. So there's another great provision of our God. It's the Holy Spirit, the, the person of God and the Holiest Spirit. And God wasn't done providing. He provided for us in the midst of all that, the church. Can you imagine life in this world without this? Can you imagine? We need the church. Jesus Christ died for the church. The church is the people who believe in Jesus Christ. It is not a building. It is a people who are indwelt with this Holy Spirit who believe in this one and only Son that died in our place. And so He gave us the church. And within the church, He wasn't done there. God, in His graciousness, gave us elders. Elders are called by God to be under-shepherds to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And as under-shepherds, we lead through opening this and feeding the flock of God, the truth of God from the Word of God. And God wasn't done there either. Because along with this office of elder, He created another office called deacon. And God provided us with deacons so that we might have mercy and benevolence 
and service amongst us that enables the teaching of the word to go forth so that the kingdom of Christ can grow. And so it is through deacons that the local church ministers to a broad array of recipients. Deacons are designed by God to distribute measures of relief and to function as ministers of mercy to, yes, the people within the church, us, including elders, but also to a broad array of people even outside of us because we are to take the gospel to the nations and the nations start right here in our own community. And so God has established the office of deacon within the church to minister mercy to a world that needs the mercy of Jesus Christ. The deacons are to do this in close relationship, in concert with the elders, sometimes even to relieve us so that we can focus on praying and feeding the flock from the Word of God. But there's a partnership that's established in Scripture between elders and deacons. And this morning, we get to recognize the gift, the provision of our Lord once again as we recognize two men and their wives, Kenny Danley and his wife Anna, Kurt Hoffman and his wife Kimberly, we are recognizing this morning what God has given to us. We've not chosen you. God has raised you up. And this morning is a service focused on what that means for you and for us as a congregation at large. So God is a great provider. And as we recognize this gift of deacons this morning, we're going to do that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Let me read that passage. I ask you to read with me, and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not dumbbell-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, we have read your instructions here this morning, your qualifications for the men and for the wives that you raise up in your church to serve as ministers of mercy. Help us to honor you as we look at these passages, at these qualifications. Help us to honor you and recognize your intentions for this office of deacon. And I pray that we do this for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to look, first of all, at the fact that there are some qualifications that God has outlined through the Apostle Paul for the office of deacon. I want to look at that, and then I want to look at the concept that God has called us to be about testing such men first. And once a man has proven to himself to be blameless, then we allow such a man to serve in the church as a deacon. And then finally, we're going to hear from these two men. And we're going to issue a challenge to these two men. And then as a congregation, we're going to come around these two men and their wives. And we're going to worship God by praying over them and asking God to bless their service in our midst. So let's take first these qualifications that God has outlined. I see and hear the scriptures give us eight qualifications. We will work through these pretty quickly. 
before we do so, I want to make certain that we understand two very important things. First of all, we must understand that we cannot lower God's standards in the Bible to ordain a man as deacon in our church. The standards are the standards. The other ones like it. Alternatively, we cannot raise the standards so high and above Scripture that no man could possibly meet those qualifications. We are to take the qualifications as God inspired through the Apostle Paul and we are to apply them to men that we say God has raised up in our midst. And so I want to look at these qualifications with an understanding that Paul's focus, as inspired by God, is not on a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. It's not a job description that God has given us as we evaluate who it is that can serve in our midst as deacons. It's not a job description of tasks. God has given us qualifications that measure the character of a man and his wife. So this is a calling of character, not of skill. (laughs) You have skills. Those skills will be deployed in right ways. But they will only be done because you are qualified in the area of character. Christian, godly, Christ-like character. These qualifications, if you notice throughout this text, they are present tense. They are the measure and the marks of a man, of a woman today, right now. We do look at the past a little, but the concern is, who are you today? Because there was a time that you were not Christian, correct? And there were character flaws in those days. But today, as a born-again believer, we're focusing, as God does, on the character of who you are in this moment in time. If it was not to be that way, the Apostle Paul himself could not have even been an apostle, correct? He said himself, he is the chief among all sinners. But for the glory of Christ, through the amazing grace that we've sung about, he was enabled to be an apostle and to even write these passages of Scripture. And it's because of that that I can even be an elder and you could even be considered to be a deacon this morning. So, the last thing I would say is the rest of the congregation, you're, you're in a dangerous spot right now because you could quickly flip a switch and say this is really a sermon to four people. And it's not. Because these qualifications that are outlined in 1 Timothy 3 apply to all Christians. We are all to hold fast to these eight qualifications and many others. So do not check out. And I would urge you to measure yourself against these qualifications as well. Because these are the common characteristics of Christians. And God in His wisdom inspired Paul to say, let's make certain our deacons and elders in verses 1-7 through meet some core qualifications. So the first one that we have is found in verse 8, and it is this. We get four actually together in this verse. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. We have this word likewise. It connects these qualifications of deacons back to the 1 through 7, verses 1 through 7 qualifications for elders. It's putting these two offices together. These are the two offices that God has established in the church. As I said earlier, elders primarily lead through preaching and through teaching and through governing the activities of the church on behalf of Jesus Christ. Well, deacons lead and fulfill their office by serving through benevolence 
and mercy and doing things to enable the ministry of the gospel to take place in the congregation. So yes, we see things like establishing a setup for the Lord's Supper, preparing for baptism and so on and so forth. And it's these two offices that come together that God enables the gospel to thrive in his church. It cannot be done with elders alone and it cannot be done with deacons alone. Both offices are needed. And both offices, if we look at all of these qualifications, require that the men who occupy them be men of mature Christian faith. Their wives must be solid Christian believers, faithful to the doctrines of our Christ. And that is what we are about now as we look through each of these quickly. The first one that we have in verse 8 is dignified. To be dignified is to be a man who, by virtue of his character, has certain Christian boldness about him. He's a bold, dignified follower of Jesus Christ. Such a man is not a flippant person. He's not silly. (laughs) He's happy. He's joyful, but he's not flippant and silly. He does not major on the minor things of this world, the trivial things of this world. He doesn't minor on the big doctrines of Jesus Christ. No, he's right. He majors on Jesus Christ and he minors on the less significant things that this world throws at us. He is to be a man of dignity, bold, courageous, Christian courage. And that is to influence the congregation that he serves amongst. The second one is this. He is not to be double-tongued. I think we know exactly what that means. He is not to say one thing to certain people, but another thing to other people. He is to be a man who has one word that comes forth from his mouth that is born in his heart. And it is either yes or no. It's not yes to some people and no to others. He is not to be two-faced. He is not to be an insincere man. He cannot be slippery with his words. You do not use words to manipulate situations or people to fit your whims. You speak truth in a dignified way so that the gospel is not tarnished in your words and your actions. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You are men who measure your words and you mean what you say. You're not double-tongued. Third, not addicted to much wine. There is a prohibition from, from intoxication throughout Scripture. And there is an instruction here that you are not to be subject to, you are not to be a slave to intoxicating drink. I think there's a spirit here also, though, that goes further. You are not to be enslaved by anything of this world. It might be alcohol. It might be drugs. It might be money. It might even be tobacco. Or it might even be food. You're not to be dominated by the things of this world. You are to be dominated by Jesus Christ so that you can serve faithfully in his church. 
There is nothing that can be in the place of Jesus Christ in your life that gives you peace of mind, security, confidence, stability. It all needs to be based not on anything of this world, but only Jesus Christ. And then fourth, you're not to be greedy for dishonest gain. An interest in money and personal financial gain has deadly potential in your life. First uh, Timothy 6, still in this same book, this same letter that Paul wrote. First Timothy 6, starting in verse 6, I want you to listen to the warning that Paul gives about this qualification. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. Listen to verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Take heed to verses like that. The love of money is like a powerful drug and it can delude the judgment of even the best of men. It's perhaps more dangerous than that of alcohol. Because it is often so much of what we are about to earn a living. And it can so quickly become a God. The love of money screams, Christ is not enough for me. I am not satisfied in Christ. That's what the love of money yells. And I would urge you men and you ladies to be steadfastly satisfied and content in Jesus Christ. And whatever it is that he provides for you. So we have there four qualifications right out of the gate. One positive, be dignified. Three negative, don't be double-tongued. Don't be addicted to much wine. And don't be greedy for dishonest gain. We then move to a, a second area. That first area was character qualifications. The second one is a doctrinal qualification. And it's found in verse 9. I really believe that this is the center of the qualifications for the deacon. I, I, this is a big one because it's doctrinal in nature. Look at it, verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What does that mean? I think all other qualifications hinge on this one. Herein lies the central qualification that you are to be about let's look first at this phrase hold the mystery of the faith what does that mean well this is another way of paul saying hold fast to the gospel read both of your questionnaires again this morning and you both nailed it on this qualification you said i hold fast to the gospel that's how i am one who holds the mystery of the faith Look down in chapter 3, verse 16 of this First Timothy epistle. Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
That is exactly the mystery of the faith that he's talking about up here in deacon qualifications. And look what it is. He was manifest in the flesh, that is Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated in the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. And he was believed on in the world. And then he was taken up into glory. These are the doctrines of the Christian faith. And you are called to hold to them with a clear conscience. Why are they mysterious? Throughout the whole Old Testament, Christ was not yet revealed. He was hinted at. He was pointed to. And that mystery was revealed. And His name is Jesus Christ. And He was manifested in the flesh. He was proclaimed above the nations. He was seen by angels. He was taken up in glory. You're to hold fast to that truth in your personal Christian life and in your serving in this church in the office of deacon the deacon must hold firm to the truth of the gospel without wavering and he must hold biblically true theological understanding and beliefs it's all got to be grounded on what's in the word here it's not something that you conjure up on your own we call this living within the confines of sound doctrine you need to have sound doctrine doctrine matters in the life of the deacon, in the Christian. Let's hold for a moment and now go to this next phrase, with a clear conscience. Yes, you need to hold fast to the mystery of the faith, but you are called to do so with a clear conscience. Your words, your thoughts, and your actions must be consistent with doctrinal beliefs that come from the Bible. Consistent. They must run parallel. They must complement one another. If not, your conscience will testify against you and convict you of sin. And that's a good thing. You will be convicted by your conscience if your life does not match your doctrine. However, I want to warn us. If we don't listen to our conscience and we ignore it and we stiff arm it and we shove it aside, we sear it, the Scriptures say. We numb ourselves to the conviction of our conscience. And then when we live according to a clear conscience, it's actually unclear because we're living contrary to the doctrines of the Bible that we once held true. And so we really need to understand that we need to get our doctrine right. And then when our conscience speaks to us in ways when we're contradicting that doctrine, we must respond to that conscience. And that conscience is empowered because it's inhabited by the Holy Spirit. God in us. And it is in that that he calls us to repentance. So if the conscience is ignored, it will be defiled and weakened and it will make sin and hypocrisy easy to practice in your life. And that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. I want to speak to the conscience a little bit more. Your conscience will always, Kenny and Kurt, it will always be as strong as your doctrine. If you're weak on this, your conscience will be weak. You need to load up with a lot of this. Personally and privately, yes. Right here in these moments at 1015 when we gather, at 9 o'clock in our Sunday school sessions, on Wednesday night in our discipleship classes, these are all intended to load our hearts and souls up with doctrine, sound doctrine, so that we will have strong, 
fervent consciences empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so you and your wives need to be men and women of the Word, exercising your doctrinal conscience so that it is there ready to convict you when you contradict the Word of God. The stronger your doctrine, the more convicting your conscience will be and the more Christ-like you will live. So always be building your doctrine as a deacon and as a Christian. So there we have a doctrinal qualification. I think it is central to all the others. Now we go to some family qualifications that Paul was inspired to give us. Verse 11 speaks to this. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. So when deacons are considered for the office, their wives are to be included in their qualifications. This is where you two ladies come in. The deacon's wife must be qualified. Why? Because she is appointed by God to be his helper in his ministry of serving in a merciful way within the confines of the church. Anna and Kimberly, you are not to be disconnected from your husband's ministry in this church. It's not their office to hold by themselves. You are to be integrated into their service in this church. And it's with great delight that we have called your husbands to be deacons because we have considered you in this process and you're already there. I'm not telling you to start doing something. I'm telling you to continue as you faithfully have been. Your marriages, we've looked into both of them, your marriages are beautiful. You are beautiful women. Your husbands are godly, beautiful men. And y'all do complement one another tremendously. And I say that without reservation. Knowing that we have our moments at home. So you are not to be disconnected from your husband's service in this church. You are an integral part. There will be times that you will be called upon to minister to women in ways that your husbands can't. And so you are an invaluable partner in this office of deacon for these men. I want you to notice how the qualifications for you two ladies follow the qualifications for your two men that we've already gone through. First of all, it says that you are to be dignified. Well, that's just like the first qualification in verse 8 that we covered for your husband. So both of you are to be dignified. The second qualification, you're not to be a slanderer. Well, that coincides with your husband's call to be not double-tongued. These are the same topics. You are to mirror and copy your husband in this. The third one, you are to be sober-minded just like your husband's not to be addicted to much wine. You are to be of sound mind, temperate, always sober in your thinking and not distracted or distorted by something outside of Jesus Christ. And then number four, you're to be faithful in all things just like your husband is to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These are parallel qualifications that the two of you are to hold together as you fulfill this calling of deacon in our church. You're to be faithful in all things to Jesus Christ. You're to be faithful to your husband in the name of Jesus Christ. You're to be faithful to Daniel and Kira and 
our next two little ones that are coming in the name of Jesus Christ. You're to be faithful to this church in the name of Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on and on. Faithful in all things. And we see you there right now. We urge you to stay there. And you will stay there if you continue with your husband to load up on sound doctrine so that your conscience will be strong to guide you as you serve. If we continue with the family qualifications, look at verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife and let them manage their children and their households well. The husband of one wife is a qualification that applies to a man who is married. The office of deacon does allow for a man that's single to be a deacon in the church. Otherwise, we would have some problems with some men in Scripture that were unmarried and served in mighty ways. But if a man is married, he is to be the husband of one wife. If a man cannot imitate Jesus Christ in his relationship with the church in the way that he relates to his wife, he is unfit to serve as a deacon in the body of Christ. He is to be a one-woman man who has a single-minded devotion to his one and only wife. And this devotion must be found in his physical relationship with her, his emotional relationship with her, his spiritual relationship with her. He must be a minister of mercy to his wife first. Because that's how Jesus Christ ministers to us, his bride, the church. He is to manage his children and his own household well. The deacon must not sacrifice or neglect his family for the work of the church. This is not a place for you to come work and to neglect your wife and your children. You come here and work and serve after you've gotten it done there. And we will hold you accountable to that. You must lead well at home first. Your priority is in your home. Only faithfulness at home enables you to even come up here and serve in this church. And you must be a minister of mercy to your family financially, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. You must be a good deacon at home before you can be a good deacon in your church. So there we have it. We have eight qualifications. Dignified, not double-tongued, not greedy for sordid gain. I just lost the other one. Not addicted to much wine. You're to hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You're to have a wife who does these things with you. You're to have one wife. You're to be the husband of one wife. And you're to manage your household well. That is what is expected of you by God before you can even begin to serve as a deacon in his church. Then we go back to verse 10. You might have noticed I skipped verse 10. Let's go back to verse 10 because the second area of this sermon this morning is one that I would entitle, you are to be tested and proven blameless before you can occupy the office of deacon. Verse 10, and let them be also tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let's look at tested first. A deacon must be seasoned. He must be tested. He must be refined. He must be proven. We must be able to determine that he is 
authentic in his doctrine and that his conscience is clear. There are no specifics given in the scriptures for testing a a man for the office of deacon. The churches are given a lot of freedom there, but all that freedom needs to be exercised under the authority of the scriptures. There's a lot of ways that you can do this. We are told by Paul later on over in chapter 5, verse 22, that we are not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. We're not to be quick in doing this symbolic ordaining of laying hands upon you and saying to you, we commend you to God and we ask God to bless us by your service in this congregation. We're not to do that quickly. We're to do that slowly. Would you agree that we've done that slowly? It was more than a year ago that we started this process with you. We have not been hasty. Why have we been so intentional? Well, a lot of things. There's the ebb and flow of the life of the church, and there has to be a good time for that to all be done. But there also has to be a time where we can measure you on the other side of saying, would you pray about being a deacon and a deacon's wife? We, the church, you need to understand. We, the church, make ourselves vulnerable. When we put a man in office. The church gets very vulnerable when you call an elder to serve in your midst. The church is vulnerable when we pause everything and bring two men and their wives before us and ask them to serve as deacon in our congregation. That is a potentially vulnerable moment because we're doing this with human beings who are fallen in nature. But by the grace of God, they have been saved. But they still struggle from time to time with sin, don't they? The thing about Christians is we don't stop sinning. We start repenting. And Christians are still people who struggle in the flesh with this sin nature. But what marks a Christian different from a non-Christian is we stop when our conscience convicts us of the doctrine that we hold in our minds and hearts, but we're not living up to. And we repent and ask the Lord to forgive us for those sins. And so we make ourselves, as I've said, vulnerable when we call you to be deacons. Vulnerable in that if you violate one of these qualifications in an unrepentant way, it is harmful to the church. If an elder violates one of the qualifications, it hurts the entire congregation. You can look across our land and see broken churches because of fallen pastors everywhere. And you can look across the land and you can see broken churches because of corrupt deacon bodies. We also make ourselves vulnerable because it is hard on a church for a man to abandon his post. You picture an elder just yanking out of here or a deacon just drifting off into the wild blue yonder. That hurts a people because we've made ourselves vulnerable by coming before God and one another and saying, we need you to lead in our church in the office of deacon. So this is a serious calling with much at stake, much at stake. The impact is eternal. 
how you conduct yourselves leading in our church as deacons could have eternal ramifications on souls. So understand the sobriety of this moment, but also understand the privilege of standing before Christ and saying, I have served as a minister of mercy to your people, in this case at Rocky Point Baptist Church. It's a great calling. I highly commend it to you. And I'm thankful that you're here today to say, yes, how about me? We've done some things to test you. We've been very intentional for the past year or more. We have considered your personal background. We have interviewed you. Many of us have interviewed you, sometimes backwards and forwards, sometimes over a barbecue sandwich and sometimes in an office. And we found you to be men who hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We asked you, gentlemen, to fill out a questionnaire that would reveal to us your confession of faith and how you view yourselves in a humble way against the qualifications that are outlined in the scripture and we have been quite satisfied with what you wrote there you wrote with sound doctrine we've observed you over this time and have established that you are men and women of christ-like reputation and then we've actually watched you serve in this congregation and you've been deacons for a long time, whether you knew it or not. You have been ministers of mercy in this church for greater than two or three years in various capacities. And we've been blessed by that service. And we're just acknowledging it today. So you don't start being a deacon today. You keep doing what you have been doing. You know, a true deacon looks for opportunities to serve without a title and without being asked. And both of you men and both of you ladies, wow. You have done that. We do not make deacons. Churches do not manufacture deacons. They don't have a program that they put men through to be deacons. That program belongs to God. And God's the one that makes deacons and raises them up. And this morning, we are just saying, right there, those four, they are gifts from God to Rocky Point Baptist Church. And we're just acknowledging what He has done in our midst with you. Then it says, after testing them, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves to be blameless. Boy, that's a big word, blameless, because we do know we live in fallen flesh. And we do know we're all quite aware of the sins that we've committed. And it's hard for us to imagine being blameless. But I want to share the gospel with you this morning because the gospel is about being blameless. Blameless is the equivalent of the very first qualification in chapter 3, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 2. The overseer must be above reproach. Must be blameless. Blamelessness is not found in your good works, in uh, balancing out the accounts. Did something wrong, I'm going to go do something right, so I'm blameless again. That's not blamelessness blamelessness is found only in the salvation that is to be had only in jesus christ uh, we I, I can't tell you how often this passage of scripture is coming out of this pulpit when i'm standing in it but second corinthians 7 10 and 11 says this godly grief produces repentance that brings about 
salvation without regret. We're looking for godly grief in all of us. When we see our sins through the eyes of God, we are grieved, and that brings us to repentance that brings about salvation and enables us to live without regret. Verse 11 goes on. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. That's blameless language. And I want to say this morning that we have tested you to see the doctrine is sound. We have also tested you and we will allow you to serve in this church because you have proven yourselves blameless. And you have done that because you believe in Jesus Christ who paid the price as a substitute for your sins. And in the eyes of God, through the belief in his death and his resurrection, you are blameless. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that in the four of you in your lives. To the praise of God. So this morning, I say to you, church, we as elders commend the Danleys and the Hoffmans to you as men and women who hold fast to the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they do so as blameless, born again saints of His. And I'm going to ask now for them one by one, the two men, to come forward. And I want them to address you and share with you their testimony of how they came to know Jesus Christ and how they became blameless. And also what it is about their discernment and their calling to be a deacon at Rocky Point Baptist Church. And there was a tug of war before this service as to who would go first. And Kenny outmuscled Kurt. So I present to you this morning, Kenny Danley. Right here. Good morning. Good, good morning. As Edward said, I'm I'm Kenny, and that's my wife Anna. And I'm sure most of you know be my know me by now. And I want to take a couple of minutes to tell you a little about my testimony and how, that I, how I came to know the Lord. I was born and raised here in Stephenville. Uh, I'm one of four brothers, no sisters. I grew up in a little Baptist church here in town, uh, the same church my mom, my grandma, my great-grandmother went to. And I was very blessed to have such awesome parents that are here today who had me in church from the day I was born until the day I moved out and was on my own. I was also blessed to have been raised in a church that was very biblical and stood firmly on the gospel. Starting out in the nursery and moving on into Sunday school, I learned all the normal stories you hear in Sunday school. People like Adam and Eve, uh, Noah, Jonah, and even Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. From the pulpit during the preaching, there was no shortage of gospel being preached every time the congregation assembled. And even from an early age... I could tell that something was just messed up with man. Something was wrong with mankind. And I knew that even I had a tendency to disobey my parents and just want to do my own thing, just like I learned about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They wanted to do their own thing, just like me. I didn't want to share with my brothers all the time 
I had a temper. And sometimes I was even known to be hard-headed. And still am. My mom and dad kept taking me to church every time the doors were open. And continued to show and teach me how the Bible said to act. So one Wednesday night at church during the sermon, I was sitting near the back of the sanctuary. Not doodling or sleeping. I was listening to the message. I heard how much God loved me. That he would send his only son to die for me. A sinner. And even though I was a sinner. And 2 Timothy Timothy 3.15 says, And how from a child that you have been acquainted with the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith in Jesus Christ. So at the age of seven, I put my faith and trust in my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, knowing that when I die, as all men do and will, I can know that with complete confidence where I would spend my eternity in paradise with my Lord. So fast forward uh, more than 20 years later today, and here I am standing in front of you as a deacon candidate. If you would have told me a few years back that I would be standing up here, I would have just laughed at you. And a few months ago, as, as Greg approached me and told me to pray about being a deacon, uh, the first thing that popped in my head was, me? You talking about me? Uh, I said to myself, I'm inadequate for this position and responsibility. I still have many faults and fail fail sometimes to be the man of God that God has called me to be. But with meeting with Edward and the deacons, as he talked about, and through prayer, I began to change my mind. They told me, if it takes being adequate to be a servant or leader for the Lord, then that disqualifies all of us. If we're adequate on our own, then we wouldn't need the Lord to give us strength, and most of all, to be our substitute and die for us. I began to look past my failures and realize I had a choice to make. I could either sit back and relax and keep doing what I was doing, or I could step up and be a servant of the Lord in his church and continue to serve him. Even though I still know I am inadequate, I am excited to take on this new role and begin to work for the Lord in many, many more ways. God will continue to shape and mold me into the man he wants me to become, and all of us too. Both Anna and I pray we can be a blessing to this church and do whatever we can to show the love of Christ in any way that the Lord presents. Uh, 2 Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As we read of Christ, the ultimate servant of God, let us all be more and more like him each day. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Um, It's a blessing to be here with all of y'all this morning. Um, I want to thank everyone, first of all, for uh, all of the guidance and the encouragement that I've received from you, the body of Rocky Point, for the last five or six years. Uh, It wouldn't be, without y'all, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. Um, So they've asked me to give a little bit of my testimony this morning, uh, part of how I got to be who I am today. Some of y'all may have heard bits and pieces of this. Others of y'all may not have heard any of it. So I apologize for anyone who uh, 
has a bit of a moment of, he never told me that. So if, if anyone likes to know more, uh, I'll be happy to talk with anyone more about it later. So uh, similar to Kenny, uh, I grew up in church. My parents were missionaries in Mexico um, for several years. And while they were missionaries in Mexico, uh, they, had a, they had a little boy. They had me. Um, so I was born in Mexico while they were on the mission field. And a couple years after I was born, they moved out uh, to a place called Eagle Pass, Texas, right on the border with Mexico. Um, and they continued their mission work there, and my father pastored a church. Um, it was there that I saw a lifestyle uh, that my parents lived that provided me with a, a great example of what the gospel really looks like. And I, and I want to thank my parents for um, being an excellent and amazing example of sacrifice and godly commitment. Um, at around age six, we went to a family conference at a place called Christ for the Nations Institute. Um, and on the way back, uh, I was riding in the very back of, a, of an old suburban, and I had plenty of time to think about what I'd seen and heard at that conference. After many hours of reflection on, on amazing testimonies and, and wonderful examples of, of other ministers and, and ministries at that conference, um, a lot of reflection curled up on the back in the back uh, of that suburban on the floor, I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and to come into my heart and to save me. Um, not long after that, uh, in the middle of a Texas river, I had the, the blessing, wonderful blessing, of being baptized by um, two of the godliest men that I've ever had the privilege of knowing and uh, been most significant role models of my spiritual development. Sorry, I'll get through this my father, and my grandfather. Being able to grow up in, uh, in church uh, as a pastor's kid, as, as a missionary kid, um, and being exposed to the ministries that I was, um, it gave me great theological foundation. I got to hear all of the things that we hear uh, that, that Edward's been preaching to us. I got to hear that from a young age, and it was, it was great. It was amazing. But it wasn't until that I got out on my own and started making my own mistakes that I was confronted with an overwhelming, um, painful, uh, but ultimately liberating personal understanding of what the gospel really is. <clears throat> I left for college, and I had my spiritual foundations put to the test. Um, I didn't go crazy. I didn't turn into a party animal or rebel against all the rules that I'd ever had. But um, I did really struggle, uh, and sometimes I failed. And it was one of the most uh, spiritually trying times in my life thus far. But God is patient, luckily, and very gracious and forgiving. And he's also firm and just. Um, he was merciful enough to grab my attention with less severity than I deserved. Uh, and uh, after realizing how lax I had become in my spiritual walk, I finally began to repent and seek forgiveness. I took a semester off from college, uh, and it was during that time that I realized I needed to cleanse myself of the way of life that I had fallen into, and I needed to renew my spiritual walk. What began that semester uh, was not a, a head knowledge like I had been learning my whole life, but it was an understanding in my heart of what the gospel really means and, and what forgiveness and, and repentance means. 
as my firsthand knowledge of grace and forgiveness and restoration that the gospel offers grew, I was gradually able to rectify some of the knowledge and theology I'd grown up learning with a firsthand knowledge and a practical experience of God's love, his correction, and his restoration. In the years since, I've strived and continued, but slowly and sometimes painfully, to grow in combining that head knowledge with the heart knowledge of the gospel. It's a lifelong process, and um, I have a long way to go still, but I pray that God will use me and the testimony that he's led me through to serve others, to serve him, and to glorify him. Um, like Kenny had said, and like Edward said, we've, we've talked with Edward and with Greg and with, with elders and deacons uh, about what it means to be an elder and what that calling on one's life is. And, um, you know, I, I can do some things. I can't do a lot of things, some things I will never be able to do. But if I can do nothing else, I can serve. I can do things for others. And the next step to continue serving is, is in my life, I pray and I feel that God has revealed to me the next step is, is to step into this role and to accept this responsibility and this privilege of serving y'all, um, like Edward said, like I have been, but now I get a title. So um, my prayer is that I continue to serve and to strive to glorify God through serving others. And I hope that I can continue to do that for y'all and that y'all will help me do that for you in this process. Thank you. Y'all circle back with me to 1 Timothy 3. We'll be talking, going over verse 13. says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Kenny and Kurt, this good standing for yourselves is a role of modeling Christ in a local church, in a lost world. It's an honor in doing that. And it's a blessing living out God's compassion, great, great, great kindness, mercy, and love to his people. This is not an office of personal gain, but of sacrificial service to God's church, but more importantly, God himself. Colossians 3.23 kind of helps us put things in proper perspective of our service. It says, whatever you do, do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward of inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve man with Christ-like love only so that we can serve God because the real treasures of the church, God's church, are its people not as pews and buildings, although that's important as well. 
As deacons, you hold a distinct office, a loving service to those who are dear to God. Jesus gives us a good example of this loving service in John 13, 1. It says, just before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that he was, his hour was about to come to depart from this world to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knew the suffering and death that he was about to go through, but he still shed his blood for us and died on the cross for us and was a substitution for the death that we deserved. In John fourteen twelve, it said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works I do. These works are works of love. And believing in Christ is doing. It's not just talking about it, but it's doing. That's what believing is all about. And it's modeling Christ's love for the church. So if you would, keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 3 and turn with me to Philippians 2 as we see another good example that Paul gave us of how Christ humbled himself in his service, blessing, pleasing God and glorifying God. And how we as deacons serve or should serve. It says, do, starting in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to on the cross. We are to empty ourselves. I love that word in there. And, and uh, he emptied himself. He's totally denied himself. And then this version said, the New King James Version says that he, he became a bondservant. If you understand, Paul said he was a bondservant. He was freed but he chose to remain to be a servant. And, and so that, that's very significant here. So we empty ourselves for Christ, taking on the form of a servant, humbling ourselves, being obedient to the point of dying to our own desires and putting Christ first. Kimberly and Anna, I'd like to challenge you as well. We often overlook the fact that the office of deacon is shared with the wife of the deacon. Edward did a good job of exposing what, what your role is as well. Your God-given responsibility is to be, be faithful to your husbands and to be at his side supporting him in prayer and ministering and encouraging him, spurring him on to please God in his humble service as a deacon. And as Edward mentioned, your role as a, as a deacon's wife may also mean ministering to other women that your husband can't minister to. And more importantly, be in the light of the world, allowing God's glory to shine through you. Back to, as we return back to 1 Timothy 3, 13, where it says that those who serve as deacons gain great confidence and faith that is in the Christ Jesus. You as a deacon and deacon's wives are to serve with great confidence in the faith of Jesus Christ, that is in Jesus Christ. This is a faith that is lived out in our lives, not just verbally expressed. 
there are responsibilities for this office of deacon, not just physical, but spiritual, ministering to the needs of the church. These responsibilities come with accountability to the highest authority, God himself. The role of a deacon and his wife is to be lived out humbly with confidence of the faith we have in Christ abiding in us. And as a servant, you as a deacon are to have your true identity in Jesus Christ. He is to be your model and your example of how you serve. My prayer for you is taken from Colossians 1, where Paul prayed for the church at Colossae. I pray that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and understanding, that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I pray that you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Kenny and Kurt, in summary, I'd like to reiterate and challenge you to serve well as men of dignity, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not be men greedy for dishonest gain, to be men that hold fast to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Continue being a husband of one wife and to manage your children and your households well so that you will be found blameless. You have been tested and now have been asked to serve as deacons because you have proved yourself to be worthy of serving as deacons serving the church with Christ as your model. So now we'd like to take some time to spend praying over you, laying hands on you. We ask the elders to come forward and to begin with, and then when the elders get done, then the deacons will come forward. And then I'd like to invite the remainder of the church to come forward and pray and lay hands on Kurt and Annie, Kimberly, and Anna.